Yes, so it's John 1, chapter 1, page 1611. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Well, thanks, Helen. And I should say a very big welcome to the Year 7s who are with us today. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, I know my sermons won't be quite as fun as the kids' programs, uh, but I hope you guys will find it really helpful being uh, in here with us, going in depth into what the Bible says as we seek to follow Jesus. Um, for those of you who were here last week, uh, you may have been thinking, well, hang on, we've already done this passage. Um, because yes, we did look at John 1, uh, this passage last week, but it's not a mistake. Um, it seems to me this, this section is so jam-packed full of good stuff. Uh, I thought I wanted to cover it not in one week, but over two. Uh, even still today, we're going to skip quite a few details in this wonderful section. Uh, so today is actually a bit like a sequel or part B uh, to the sermon from last week. Um, if you missed last week, the sermon is online and uh, it'd be great to catch up on it if you can. Uh, we looked last week how uh, John, the author here, the, Jesus' disciple John, he introduces us to his good mate Jesus. But John gave us an astounding first impression of Jesus and it's an impression that I hope really lasts. The first thing John wants us to know is that Jesus is God. He's the eternal word, that's the language we see, the logos I talked about last week. He is the word who has always been, and through him, all things were made. We thought a bit about the majestic uh, nature of the Trinity. Uh, Jesus as God the Son in the closest relationship with God the Father. And how he explored Jesus is not somehow a lesser God or sort of God or partly God. 
Jesus is fully God. As we look through John's account of Jesus in the coming weeks, that introduction will be crucial for us uh, to understand what's going on and what Jesus is saying. How do we make sense of this guy? The thing is, though, if that's all John told us about Jesus' nature and identity, that he's fully God, if that's all he told us before we started, we would run into some problems very quickly as we read about Jesus' life and mission. You know, why is this guy getting tired and hungry if he's fully God? Why doesn't he sort of dazzle and impress everyone he meets? He's fully God. Why isn't he, so, why isn't he impressive? But most of all, why or how does someone who is fully God die? Surely if there's one property or one characteristic that God should have, it's that he can't die. So, we have other things to learn this morning uh, that will help us really navigate uh, understanding who Jesus is as we keep reading John. Now, it won't sound quite right as I put it like this, but there are a few problems God has uh, by nature of being God. There are some problems. One problem that God seems to have is that he loves us. Uh, These pesky little creatures uh, running around, hurting, killing, stealing, lying, cheating. We mostly ignore him, uh, or we despise and mock him. And yet, God made us, God loves us, and God wants so much for us to know and to love him. Even more than that, God wants to be with us in real and tangible ways, having a proper relationship. So if you scan through the Old Testament, what we see is God is actually, he's too holy to hang out with us. He wants to be with us, but he is eternal and perfectly good, perfectly holy. And so if he was to rock up in a crowded room at a party or something like that, everyone else would die instantly. Because God is holy and perfect and we are not. And the two cannot mix. It cannot be. See, sin is such a problem for a holy God. A just God cannot just look past and ignore corruption, and he can't look past the fact that he by rights must be, he must be honoured and adored. He deserves nothing less, but because no one does that, well, it's a crime that he can't overlook. So here's the great problem. How can God, how can God enjoy a relationship with people who are sinful? How can that be? How can he be present with us? How can you do that without killing everyone in the room? Again, if we look through the Old Testament, you read through how God tries to do this or how he, how he steps towards this. It seems he can't be with people without a temple built around his presence to protect everyone. He is present among the people in the temple, but he's not really accessible. And so the great plan, the great project of God from eternity past to fix that gigantic problem, to be with us, Well, the way he solves this problem, it's so brilliant. Uh, It's so unexpected, so ingenious, that we will be singing about it into eternity, praising him for his wisdom. Because God became a man. Or as John puts it here in verse 14, I think one of the most astounding sentences ever written, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Now, many of us uh, have been following Jesus for a while. We might be very familiar with this concept. Uh, We use the word incarnation uh, to explain God becoming a man. It's a big word, incarnation. Um, We celebrate that every Christmas, at least, don't we? But every time, even though we might be familiar with it, every time we stop and we pause and think about what this means, it's absolutely staggering. 
the eternal, all-powerful God who's now suddenly confined in time and space like the rest of us. Just like us, Jesus would have got a cold, got bitten by mosquitoes, stubbed his toe. What a paradox that the God of instant, infinite wisdom knows what it's like to hit your, thumber, hit your thumb with a hammer or to bite the inside of your cheek by mistake. It's crazy. Uh, one of the best theologians of the last century, uh, someone who's very used to thinking deeply and carefully about all the things that the Bible teaches, uh, J.I. Packer, a great theologian, says this. The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering claim, uh, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. He's right, isn't he? Can you think of any story or any movie with a plot twist quite like this? Uh, even in Greek or Norse um, uh, Viking mythology, there's thousands of gods and demigods. None of them have a story so outrageous that God would actually become a human. So for over 2,000 years now, Christian thinkers have worked really hard, thinking very deeply about this truth, the reality of who God is. Uh, there have been some spectacular arguments and fights all through history. It's uh, great reading about it if you ever get the chance. Uh, some of the biggest and earliest arguments that broke out among the first Christians was about the nature of Jesus of Nazareth. The problem they seemed to have, uh, most of them were quite happy to say he was God. That didn't seem to be a problem. But many refused to say that he could have been fully human. Uh, in that time, so many people influenced by Greek philosophy and sometimes mysticism, uh, the kind of view of the world that teaches that the material, the physical, that must all be bad. And it's far better to try and escape that if we can. The argument goes that the spiritual world, that's not physical, that's good. We should pursue that. So body's bad, spirit good. The people who thought that, who really liked Jesus, they were amazed by his teaching, his miracles, his power, they very quickly concluded, well, he can't be human, not really. Yes, he's fully God, no worries with that. But maybe he just appeared to be human. Surely the good, the spiritual, wouldn't take on a body, you know, the bad, by choice. Maybe he had like a spiritual body, a bit like a ghost. Now, if, if that was true, if Jesus wasn't fully human, would that matter, do you think? Do you reckon it would make it any difference if Jesus was fully God and only kind of human? Or maybe not even human at all, just looks like us? Let's have a second. I'm going to get, I don't do this often. Let's have a second and think. What would that change about our faith in Jesus? If he's God who rules and reigns, no worries. But if he's not fully human, what would that change about what we believe as Christians? As we read the rest of John's Gospel, uh, if that were the case, it would be very confusing, actually, if Jesus wasn't fully human. He clearly experiences very human things. Uh, we would have many problems reading and understanding the Bible if that were the case. But far more than that, for now, let me just say it would change absolutely everything. It would change everything about our trust in Jesus, about our salvation, about our hope for the future, about uh, what that would mean for our own bodies and how we treat creation. 
Now, we're going to come back and explore uh, many of those things a bit later. But for now, let me just say, so much of what we believe as Christians about Jesus and how to live as his disciples, it depends. It depends entirely on Jesus being fully God and fully man. In fact, there are many groups uh, around the world who believe Jesus is God, but not fully God, or believe that he's human, but not fully human. Those groups probably are cults. They probably don't belong to mainstream Christianity. That's how central this is. So as we think about this more, the statement that, God, uh, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, the very obvious question you probably have is how? How can this be? And for the first few hundred years of Christianity, various people suggested different ways that this might be possible. Like, for instance, maybe Jesus had a human body, but not a human mind. Which, of course, would mean he's not fully human, wouldn't it? And that would be a big problem. Today, I'm going to not dive into the big debates. There's plenty to unpack there. Um, instead, I'm going to just use the benefit we have of 2,000 years of errors, mistakes, and heresies and get to the main point very quickly. Uh, we have the benefit of doing that. The main thing to know, Jesus is fully God. He's God the Son. He's of the same essence of the Father. And he's fully man. Body, mind, soul, will, conscience, entirely human. How is that possible? How can those two things be simultaneously true? We don't really know. Uh, God has only told us so much about the wonders of the incarnation. And to go beyond that, to, to speculate further, can often be unhelpful. But we can be clear on a few things. It's one person. Uh, it's not a, not a story of a divine force coming and taking on someone else's body. You know, God the Son and Jesus of Nazareth sometimes switching between the two. Now he's fully God, now he's fully man. It doesn't happen like that. It's one person. God the Son became Jesus of Nazareth. So it's one person with two natures. The divine nature, fully God, and the human nature, fully human. Now, these two natures somehow, in the incarnation, they come together and they will never again be separated. Never confused, never mixed up. The divine nature not somehow overpowering the human nature. A church council gathered in 451 AD to settle some of these arguments and to be as clear as they could about what we can and can't say about Jesus' nature. Uh, if you're taking notes and want to look this up later, it's the Council of Chalcedon, or the Chalcedonian Council. Um, I'm not sure if they all had fancy hats or not, but it's a nice picture. Uh, you know, from time to time here at church, we'll say the Apostles' Creed, we'll say the Nicene Creed together. We haven't said the Chalcedonian Creed before. It's a really good creed, except it's very, very wordy. Um, I thought today I'll just give you a few key sentences about the nature of Christ, and you get a sense of why we don't all say this together. The first bit's not too bad. Uh, here we go. We believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, the same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. So far, not too bad, not too tricky. We believe in one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, I think that's a word, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's a catchy creed. Uh, I thought maybe Kelly, next time she's writing a song for us, could somehow turn this into a great uh, a congregational song. 
By the way, if you ever thought my, my sermons are long and long-winded and confusing, I just wanted to show you it could be far worse. We could do uh, far more of this kind of stuff. I should say as well, it, it's totally okay if you haven't grasped everything I've been talking about so far. Um, what we're doing this morning in about you know, 10 or 15 minutes, skipping through about uh, 400 years of intense, deep consideration of the greatest mystery of all time. Here's the summary. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He's not one at the expense of the other. And if you're still wondering, well, this, this is fine, but it sounds like the kind of topic that the theological nerds get excited about, but doesn't really apply to anything. Believe me, the nerds do get excited about this. But the incarnation is so foundational to who God is, and understanding as well as we can, it matters in what we believe, in how we see the world, and so how we live. And so for the rest of my time, that's what I want to speak about, why the incarnation is very good news. If you have your leaflet there, you'll see there's a sermon outline, and at the bottom, uh, there's five dot points uh, under that heading. They're just the first five things that sort of came to mind. Um, there is far more to say about this, but uh, here's the first five things I thought of about why the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, why it's very good news and why it matters in our life. If you have your Bible still open to John chapter 1, you'll see that from verse 12, John 1, uh, from verse 12, we're told that those who receive Jesus, uh, that is, accept and trust him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, that uh, might actually sound a bit jarring to many Australian ears. Uh, most Australians seem to assume that everyone is already one of God's children, no matter what, because we, by rights, just seem to be able to claim that by virtue of being created by him. Uh, some of you would have caught uh, the Victor Victorian Premier, Dan Andrews, saying exactly that a few months ago. Uh, he said, we are all God's children. Um, he was being quite cynical, I think, actually, as you're saying that, taking shots at Bible-believing Christians as he did it. But I think he represented an Australian view uh, that we're all God's children, surely. But you see here, John's saying the absolute opposite, isn't he? It's not by our virtue that we can claim the honour of being God's child and part of his family. It's actually only through Jesus. Jesus coming to us, him taking the initiative, stepping towards us to reconcile with us. It takes us receiving Jesus to believe in him and to be counted then as God's children. Jesus, and only Jesus, makes that possible. And for those who are here with us today exploring who Jesus is, it's so great you are here with us doing that. I hope this will encourage you to keep taking those next steps to find out the many benefits there are of being a child of God and what it looks like to trust Jesus with your life. You can do that today simply by praying, putting your trust in Jesus, or perhaps the next step might be just uh, coming to that life course I mentioned earlier. For all of us, do you remember how I started uh, explaining that God has a bit of a problem? He wants to be with us, but he can't because he's too holy. The incarnation changes that forever. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The very thing that God had done in part in the Old Testament, first in the tabernacle, then the temple, being present in the smallest and most guarded way, in the incarnation, God dwells with us. He lives with us. Christ first literally does that, dwelling with his people, sharing life. But beyond Jesus, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to continue that work. And for Christians, God dwells in us. It's an amazing change that we cannot take for granted, that we have access to, that we have relationship with our Creator as our Father. Not because we deserve it, 
but because he in grace came to us. And so to be a child of God means we have every right now to call on him for help. And so we can pray. This is a great truth that comes from the incarnation. We can pray, not just to a powerful and holy deity somewhere out there, but to our good, kind, heavenly Father who dwells by his spirit with us because of the incarnation. That's, of course, why we finish our prayers so often by saying we're praying in Jesus' name. We can claim the right to prayer only because of Jesus. The next big thing that John tells us, the good thing about the incarnation, is in verse 18. In verse 18, John tells us, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. God has made himself known in the incarnation. All through human history, uh, the history of human religion is really a search for God, isn't it? Uh, Humans have tried everything to find him, and maybe some of you have done that yourself in your own lives, sought everywhere to find truth, uh, to perhaps experience the divine in some way. But because of Jesus, God has made himself known. He's not hidden. He's done it in a very, very tangible way. So think about this. It's another, I guess, problem that God has. It's not really a problem, anyway. But how can a spirit, God is spirit, how can a spirit without a body make himself known to us in a way that we can understand, that we can perceive with our five senses? Well, he can speak, and he has spoken many times in many ways with words. That's the main way God has made himself known. But the clearest and loudest word, the word that reveals himself in the way that we can comprehend the most what God is like, is this word, the word made flesh. We can find out what God is like, who he is, and what his plans for our world are entirely through Jesus, what Jesus says and what he does. Ultimately, we can comprehend so much about God's nature and his heart as we look to Jesus on the cross, a God of love and service and humility and grace. There are two dangers, uh, I think, that uh, human religion falls into, two sort of extremes that we need to avoid. On one one hand is mysticism, uh, seeking intense spiritual experiences, uh, whatever it takes, abandoning control of our minds to have an ecstatic experience. Uh, So that's one extreme. The other extreme in human religion is rationalism, uh, treating God as if he were merely an object to be studied. The incarnation of Jesus makes God known to us as he is, so we can worship him in truth. We don't need to be super smart and unbelievably rational in every single uh, way we process everything. And we don't need to chase spiritual highs as we try and experience God somehow. I read this week uh, something that stuck with me and encouraged me to spend more time than I was going to on the incarnation and the nature of Jesus in this sermon. I thought it would be helpful because of what I read. It's good for our hearts to understand as much as we can about God because, uh, here's a quote, Worship is an engine fueled by truth. Worship is an engine fueled by truth. We marvel and awe at that which is worthy of adoration. If our hearts are to keep growing in love and adoration of God, let our minds keep feasting on the truths that God has revealed by Jesus, in Jesus. Well, another thing that I think is great about the Incarnation uh, is that it affirms the physical world that God has made, that it's good, 
God becoming flesh tells us that his creation, including our bodies, cannot be bad. And so we can avoid some of the thinking I mentioned earlier, uh, that we just ignore the fact we have bodies and try and live a spiritual existence uh, detached from our reality. See, we might not love the bodies we have. Uh, We might feel uncomfortable in our bodies many times, in many ways. But God in the incarnation affirms that our bodies are good. Our body, whatever it looks like, whatever struggles we may have with it, however we may feel about it, Our bodies have been dignified supremely by our Creator. He took on a body just like ours. What I find truly staggering uh, above all these things in many ways is that when Jesus rose from the dead, He kept His body. He didn't descend as a spirit somehow. He has a body even now. It's mind-blowing that God has taken into Himself humanity, body and all. We know from the gospel accounts, it's not a normal body. It's, Jesus can do some cool stuff like walk through walls and disappear all of a sudden. But he ate food. He could hug people. It's a body that he has for eternity. Which tells us we too will have a body like his. A body that will last forever. Forget notions of heaven where we're just souls floating around a cloud. We will have resurrection bodies forever and that's a good thing. And so, as we think about our spiritual lives now, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we have to keep remembering it's lived out in a physical body. Our spiritual life is tied up to our physical life. It might sound very obvious. But sometimes we might be struggling with things like impatience or anger. We can't work out why I can't overcome this. Uh, We might have uh, just a particular weakness in the face of temptation. It may be as simple as needing more sleep. We are physical creatures and our spiritual lives are connected to our physical lives. Maybe going to bed earlier sometimes will help our temperament. Putting it in a more positive way, I suppose, singing is a great expression of the body and soul working together to praise God. It uses our body and engages our mind in ways that are so good for us as as people. And how good is it, by the way, to be physically present together as a church in the same room? It's a great blessing. We have bodies. We can come together in the same physical space and enjoy fellowship I know we don't take that for granted like we once did before COVID. Another astounding thing about the incarnation, why it's good news, is that we now have someone like us. Actually, we have one of us before the throne of God right now. He's someone who knows and can sympathise with us in our struggles, our weaknesses and our temptations. I find that unbelievably encouraging and comforting, and I hope you will as well. Knowing that Jesus, who experienced the full range of human life, that he's fully God, but fully, fully human. He is right now listening to our prayers. He's cheering us on, and he understands and sympathizes with us, with how hard it can be sometimes to stay faithful to God. He's not detached from our experience, far from it. Uh, Hebrews 2 puts it like this. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See the point? Because he took on flesh, he can really help. He's our helper. And what's more, he is a mediator, a go-between, a bridge, I suppose, between us and God. And that gives us great confidence to go to God boldly, asking for help. Uh, Kelly read this out earlier, I think, but uh, I'll read it again. This is from Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's far, far more to say about this, and we really should do a series in Hebrews one day, but we'll move on. I've saved, the, I think, the best news about the Incarnation to last here, because the whole purpose of the Incarnation is to bring salvation to humanity. The problem we started with, that God loves us, and that our sin prevents relationship with Him, that would be an eternal problem uh, for us, actually. But God solved the problem as only God could. It's interesting, though, when you think about it, just to pay for sin, to defeat death itself, to save humanity, that's something that only God can do. No human uh, could ever save us from sin and death. Only God can save. But how will God defeat death? How can he? How can God pay the price for sin himself? Especially if he can't die, and that is the price for sin. Thinking about this problem from a different angle, how can humanity be given a fresh start? How can it be possible for us as humans to break away from our old sinful nature and start again, given a new nature, no longer mastered by sin, but a whole new humanity that we can be part of? We need a representative so unique, someone untainted by sin themselves, to lead us, to gather us as a new people. We need a human substitute, someone who could step in for us, for all of us, and to pay the price for our sin. We needed a human to do that. Saving us is a real quandary when you think about it. Only God can save, but the penalty for human sin can only be paid by human blood. Otherwise, there will be no justice. The incarnation is the extraordinary wisdom and genius of God. On the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth God the Son, dies. His perfect, sinless human nature, the perfect sacrifice, acceptable for all our sins. At the same time, the power of God defeats death as only God can. What a marvel. What a quandary that was overcome to bring our salvation, fully God, fully man, saving us when nothing else could. Again, there's far more to unpack here. There's many more things to say. And we will cover these things as we keep going through John's Gospel, especially when it comes to the work of salvation of the cross. But again today, a bit like last week, we've rushed through lots of big ideas this morning. Um, I do try not to preach like this too often, covering lots of ideas very quickly, uh, especially for the sake of those who are new uh, or newish to these things. This morning's been a lot to take in. Uh, I appreciate that. From next week, we will be slowing down. Uh, We'll be starting with the story of Jesus uh, as he kind of launches into history. And hopefully it won't feel so much like drinking from a a fire hose next week, if that was your feeling this morning. But as we're about to turn to the story of God the Son made flesh uh, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, uh, the final words from our passage today I want to encourage you to hold on to and to keep holding on to as we read John is also from verse 14. We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. That's the claim John the Apostle makes. He's seen the glory of God through Jesus. As we look through the pages of John, we too will be seeing his glory. And there is nothing better. There is nothing better in all of creation than to be able to behold and enjoy the glory of God. That's why he made us. He made us to know and experience his glory and to find ultimate delight in that. 
as we turn the page and keep reading next week, we'll see actually that Jesus doesn't dazzle in a glorious kind of way we might expect. He's not shiny. As we go through this series, please keep praying that each of us, keep praying for one another, that we would, we would all have the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith, like the first disciples who were able to see the glory of God, looking at this normal-looking guy, just this bloke Jesus, be able to see his glory, the glory of the one and only, especially seeing his glory on the cross. And we pray as a church, this might uh, stir our hearts in adoration and worship. Would you join me as I pray now? Uh, Heavenly Father, what wisdom uh, and majesty you've shown us in sending your one and only Son, the eternally begotten one, to take on flesh. And Jesus, we praise you uh, for the way that you humbled yourself so much. You humbled yourself to even share our humanity. You took on the struggles, the temptations uh, that we encounter ourselves. And we thank you for the way this gives us encouragement and comfort and strength. We thank you and we praise you and we ask you to keep growing all of us in our knowledge of you. Uh, help us then to also grow in the way we praise and worship you all our lives. And so please reveal your glory to us and please give us the eyes of faith to see you as you are. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.